And I will say that from the very tip top, right, from Xi Jinping all the way down through the CMC and the PLA, they absolutely talk about how space uh, and these new age weapons are going to be the forefront of the next battle uh, and potentially going to be the determining factor in those battles. So they are putting a lot of time and effort uh, into space, into understanding space as a warfighting domain and how it fits into their, their entire information operations domain warfare. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello again, Downlink listeners. China's Strategic Support Force, a.k.a. its Space Force, is looking for, quote, a combination of soft and hard kill methods, unquote, to destroy Elon Musk's broadband satellite communications constellation Starlink. That's from the People's Liberation Army researchers. The report is a month old, but it came to light on Friday in a South China Morning Post story. The timing is pretty interesting. Just a few days earlier, Beijing also got into the satellite broadband business, is creating a company to put roughly 13,000 satellites into low Earth orbit. Essentially, it's hoping to launch its own state-controlled version of Starlink and the UK's OneWeb network. So it's not surprising that the space economy and space defense were a part of U.S. President Joe Biden's visit this week to China's Democratic neighbors. In fact, you could say that the packed five-day trip to both South Korea and Japan was focused on China's push to modernize and expand its military capabilities and the concerns it's causing over and above the horizon. The Biden administration and allied nations in the Indo-Pacific region are seeking to strengthen alliances, both economic and in defense. In Seoul, 13 nations, including the United States, launched the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. There was a quad summit that brought the heads of state of India and Australia to Tokyo. To name a couple of the space headlines Biden's trip generated, first, the U.S. and India committed to expanding cooperation in new defense domains, specifically space. Second, the U.S. and Japan agreed to deepen cooperation in space to strengthen economic security. So what does this all mean? Like, what message does China think it's receiving? Is it being deterred from what some spacefaring nations consider bad or aggressive behavior on orbit? To answer those questions and more, I spoke with Brendan Mulvaney, director of the Air University's China Aerospace Studies Institute, and Malcolm Davis, who is a senior policy analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Here's our conversation. Hello, gentlemen. Malcolm, Brendan, thank you so much for making the time to come on the podcast. Oh, look, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited for the uh, the first time here. Well, as this is your first time on the podcast, Brendan, please take a moment and introduce yourself, your organization, and what you're working on. Sure. So uh, I'm Brendan Mulvaney, uh, Marine for 25 years now working uh, for the U.S. Air Force as the director of the China Aerospace Studies Institute. Uh, we do publicly available research on everything that flies in China. So that's uh, space and satellites and rockets and missiles and airplanes and everything that supports it. Uh, and we do that uh, for the Air Force and the, and the DOD uh, at large. So that's who we are. And uh, I will 
noting on that, I will say that everything I say today is my views and opinions and does not necessarily reflect that of the Air Force or, or the DOD. So thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. And Malcolm, you are my regular point man for Indo-Pacific Security and Space Affairs. But for our new listeners, briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your work. Sure. I'm Dr. Malcolm Davis. Uh, I'm Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra, Australia. And I focus on space policy, space security, future military technology, including a fair bit on air power. And of course, I do the sort of major power geopolitics issues of China, Russia, the United States in the Indo-Pacific. So it's a, it's, a, it's a huge area to get involved in, but very enjoyable. Well, this week is quite busy in the Indo-Pacific with Biden's trip to South Korea and Japan. There's the launch of the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which includes a dozen countries in addition to the United States. There's the Quad Summit and all the bilateral meetings. And China, well, was not invited. And, oh, that comment from President Joe Biden on Taiwan Monday in Tokyo, from my reading of the presser at China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, saying that this is not being well-received is an understatement. Brendan, <laughs> could you explain how all of these meetings, announcements, and the Taiwan third rail comment is playing in Beijing? And Malcolm, I know you'll have some thoughts on this, so you know you can jump in at will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, uh, certainly did not go over well. One, you know, China was already had its hackles up about uh, just the trip in general and, and who he was meeting with and the fact that he wasn't going to go and, uh, and meet with the leaders in Beijing. And then uh, this comment, which uh, I don't think is a change of policy. I think it's just uh, stating what, uh, well, certainly know what it at, at that level had stated before, but was kind of an, a, a known assumption here. And again, he didn't change the policy to say that we would unconditionally uh, you know, come to Taiwan's aid, he said, if China, if Taiwan was attacked, uh, which has kind of been the U.S. policy all along. So, again, first time uh, to actually say it out loud, saying it in Asia, certainly potentially sending a message, you know, the, the White House uh, trying to walk it back a little bit and say, well, you know, the president likes to speak off the cuff, but no, nothing has changed. Uh, but regardless of that, uh, I think the Chinese saw the timing of it uh, and, and the phraseology uh, troubling, to say the uh, to say the least. Falcon? Yeah, I'll- I'll, I'll follow on. Uh, look, I think that uh, Brendan is correct. Uh, it doesn't necessarily imply a change of policy uh, away from strategic ambiguity on Taiwan. I think uh, President Biden was speaking from his own convictions in terms of what the US should do if Taiwan were attacked by China. But I don't think it necessarily implies that the US is moving towards a determined approach of automatically coming to Taiwan's assistance in the event of attack. There's also other complicated potential scenarios, I think, um, including gray zone actions, which we need to be thinking about. So it's far more complicated than just a, a, a scenario of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And, and I, I would you... totally agree with that. And I just wanted to say that, you know, when I lived in China uh, a long time ago, 2003, four and five, when we were there, uh, this question came up in a, in a couple um uh, you know, d- dialogues and, and conferences that I was at. And I told them then that, yeah, if, you know, if China outright attacks Taiwan, absolutely the U.S. was going to come to the military aid of Taiwan. And there was no question in my mind then or now. But what I would always throw back to the questioner was, well, now you have to describe to me the road to war. How did we get there? And to Malcolm's point, there's a lot of different ways to get to that point. And all of that makes a very big impact on 
the nature of the response and how, you know, the, the size and scope of that response. So again, I don't think it's a big shift in policy. Uh, and it was just saying what uh, everyone kind of tacitly knew before. So if you could encapsulate the message China thinks it's receiving from the United States and its partners, you know, from these uh, meetings, summits, announcements, if you could encapsulate it into one or two sentences, you know, what is it? And how is this going to affect China's defense calculus? Malcolm, why don't you start? And then Brendan. Look, I think that um, China's uh, defense um, ambitions and determination to build up its military capability uh, so that it could uh, launch a cross-straits invasion, I think that will remain the case. Um, you know, they're not going to deviate from that. I think that they will take the US president's statement on board in the same way that you and I and Brendan are talking about it, they'll understand exactly what he's talking about. Um, they recognise the potential for a US intervention in support of Taiwan. That's one of the reasons they're building up uh, such sophisticated anti-access and error denial capabilities. So I think that, you know, I don't see any radical change in China's defence approach or defence policy going forward from here. They'll continue doing what they're doing. Um, but I think there is a determination on the part of China to force the unification of Taiwan. Now, they want to do it peacefully if they can, but if they can't do it peacefully, then I don't think the current status quo is acceptable uh, indefinitely into the future. But what's the message that China thinks it's receiving from the United States and its and its partners? I mean, there's there's quite a group that has come together over these past few days. Brendan? Yeah, I think it's just reinforcing uh, what the Chinese have long held uh, as their worldview is that the United States is trying to uh, to, to encircle them, right, uh, to to lock them in, and uh, is using Taiwan as a lever to do just that. Uh, they see the United States is trying to keep them from uh, developing and taking what they would consider as China's rightful place in the world, uh, and they see this as a as a useful foil. But I don't think there's any new message. Uh, but it's simply just going to reinforce their current understanding of, yeah, look, the U.S. is trying to use its, in the Chinese term, the Cold War alliance mentality uh, to, uh, to, to hinder China's rise. So I don't know that there's anything new there, uh, but it is certainly, uh, you know, a confirmation bias, if you will, uh, of what they already expected and already were looking for. They're just simply going to see more evidence of that, which will, uh, you know, spur them on to continue with the modernization of the military, the expansion uh, of their capabilities uh, and everything else that they've been doing. If we could take a moment, I'd like to give our audience a brief understanding on deterrence. And last week, Brendan, you hosted a great conference on China, the U.S., and deterrence. And for those of us that are not seeking a PhD, could you give us the basics like how does the U.S. deter China and how does China deter the U.S.? As in, like, what is Wei Shi? Yeah, so this is a great question, which is why we held the conference. Um, and I'll tell you, there was some great stuff, and we will be publishing some of the papers that come out of that. But uh, I think Colonel Markram hit the nail on the head when he talked about you know, when we talk about Wei Shu, this is uh, often uh, translated as deterrence in English, but it really has more of an active meaning. It's, it's closer to compellence uh, or coercion. Uh, and when the Chinese uh, look at the region and look at trying to deter uh, or the United States or compel uh, other uh, actors in the region to do certain things, it's really a more of an active role. And we need to make sure that we understand that. The other thing that came uh, came away, I think Dr. Mankin mentioned it, is, you know, we have to be very specific that 
deterrence happens in the mind of the opponent. So it doesn't matter what U.S. people think. It doesn't matter, you know, what the Brits think or the Aussies think uh, is deterrence or what would deter them. It matters what the Chinese think in their own minds and what, and what it would be uh, to deter them. Uh, and I think Jeff Edmonds made the point that, uh, you know, we can't just deter China. China is an amorphous conceptual idea. Um, you know, you have to be very specific. I want to deter Xi Jinping from launching a military invasion of Taiwan next month, right? That's that's a thing you can deter. Uh, you know, deterring China is is not a thing, and we need to make sure that policymakers and strategists understand those differences. And then when you talk about deterrence in general, yes, we would like to uh, deter China from taking aggressive actions. But then when you actually come up with a set of policies or capabilities needed to do that, you need to be really very specific about it. I'm sure everyone's wondering, hey, I thought this podcast was about space. And it is. And there are a large number of announcements for both civil and defense sectors coming out of this week. Civil space cooperation was at the top of Biden's remarks with Prime Minister Kishida Fumio of Japan. And in their joint statement, cooperation in the cyber and space domains, which is a military reference, made it into the text. There were similar overtures made in Korea with President Yoon Suk-yeol, And we shouldn't forget that both South Korea and Japan are already working closely with U.S. Space Force. And then there's the bilateral meeting with Biden and Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India. The readout said the U.S. and China committed to expanding cooperation in new defense domains, specifically naming space. So, Malcolm, while this isn't the first time the U.S. and India have talked about defense and space in the same sentence, why do they see a need for this cooperation? And what does that look like? And where does this future reiteration of this agreement, because they are repeating this, leading the two nations in space for the future? Look, I think um, people uh, around the Indo-Pacific region, governments are becoming aware that space is a contested domain. Um, We cannot uh, assume access to space will always be there. Uh, We're watching what the Chinese and the Russians are doing with counter space capabilities. And so there's a much greater incentive now to start thinking more in more sophisticated and serious terms about space as an operational domain or as a warfighting domain. That's certainly what is happening in Australia, uh, where Australia is working very closely with the Americans and with other partners, including the Japanese, less so perhaps with the Indians, um, on how we deal with the space domain as a new operational domain. Um, And so the discussions that were occurring this week between the United States and India, the United States and Japan, and I'm sure Australia also just talked about space in its meetings between Prime Minister Albanese and Biden as well, um, I think reflect a more mature and sophisticated perception and thinking about the space domain in general, uh, about a recognition that space is contested uh, and is likely to become uh, a warfighting domain very quickly. Um, So we are now coordinating our positions, uh, developing our thinking and our conceptual thinking and our strategies, creating our organizational structures So we're at the beginning of that process. It's going to be very interesting in the coming years how um, the US and its partners in the Indo-Pacific think about space and develop space capabilities and space organizations. Doesn't this kind of look like a surface-based containment policy, but space has no national borders? And I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is, you know, will these announcements and cooperative activities actually deter China from possible future aggression in the space domain? I mean, should be 
we be wary of unintended consequences? Will this even affect how the PLA strategic support force employs Weisha in space? No, I don't um, think that, uh, I don't know that it's going to have a huge direct impact on uh, Chinese strategic calculus. What I think it reflects is the fact that the rest of the world has really woken up to what China did, uh, you know, almost two decades ago, in that uh, space is no longer the purview of, you know, great power nations. Uh, you know, for the longest time, it was just the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, and then Russia after uh, the fall of the wall. But, uh, you know, China has demonstrated, uh, and now we have commercial companies demonstrating on a regular basis, uh, that it's accessible, that there are huge benefits, both commercial, economic, as well as military and strategic, uh, that come from operating in space. Uh, and I think uh, everyone is now on board, the Australians, uh, the New Zealanders, uh, you know, the Brits, everyone wants to get into space. They understand um, uh, the importance of it. Uh, and you know, we've seen the, the rise of military space uh, components, um, you know, in each of those countries in the EU. Uh, and so I think it's just a realization at the end of the day that uh, space is now accessible, uh, which is mean, which means it will become more congested uh, and is certainly going to be contested. So what impact that has, uh, you know, hey, the Chinese have got to contend with all the same things that the United States does. Uh, you know, particles floating around uh, don't discriminate what satellites uh, they run into. They just run into whatever satellite happens to be in their way. Uh, and so that absolutely will be a consideration. But it's not something that's going to necessarily change their tactics uh, or how they plan to uh, to use space in the future. And I will say that from the very tip top, right, from Xi Jinping all the way down through the CMC and the PLA, they absolutely talk about how space uh, and these new age weapons are going to be the forefront of the next battle uh, and potentially going to be the determining factor in those battles. So they are putting a lot of time and effort uh, into space, into understanding space as a warfighting domain and how it fits into their their entire information operations domain warfare. Malcolm? Yeah, look, I think that's that's spot on. And uh, I think also we need to think about the commercial dimension to this, uh, which Brendan talked about, uh, the potential for greater ease of access to space. If we can reduce the cost of accessing space dramatically through technologies like reusable launch systems, small satellites, uh, then suddenly the incentive to actually go to space and do more in space, including space resource utilization, uh, I think is is quite apparent. And so when we think about the United States looking to return astronauts to the lunar surface in the late 2020s and the Chinese having similar plans in the early to mid 2030s, you have this uh, new um, canvas, this new astro strategic canvas opening up which we need to think about. We need to actually conceptualize and plan for. We need to create new regulatory structures. We need to create new uh, methods of managing relations in space. The Artemis Accords, I think, were part of that process, but that's just a first step. So these discussions that are occurring between governments uh, across the Indo-Pacific, and I think also beyond the Indo-Pacific into Europe, um, are these first steps in thinking about whole new era in space that is akin what i would say is a new golden age of space exploration that's opening up before us but there's also real risks there in terms of how adversaries could use space uh, as an operational and warfighting domain and so we have to think about deterrence in space and how do we prevent space systems being attacked how do we ensure resilient space capabilities that's going to require new approaches and i think that's exactly where we're at now well, and I think part of the part of that is also the reason that uh, the United States has transferred space traffic management to the Commerce Department 
uh, is to to knit together those societies and those those that culture, right? Uh, bringing out of specifically just defense and national security, making it clear that it is a you know a, a broader picture that affects people's lives uh, as well as commerce and economies and all these things. Uh, and other nations are probably more likely to deal with the U.S. Department of Commerce than they are necessarily dealing with DOD unless they're a treaty ally, right? And so I think Malcolm's, uh, you know, right on point there that we're we're it's a new era and we need to figure out what we want it to look like uh, and how do we wrap as many countries as possible into that vision of the future uh, so that it's protected and safe for everyone. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Well, it's thank you for pleasure. having me. It was great. Thank you very much for having me. It was really good. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.